Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're going to bring you my conversation with Noor Swede, founder and general partner at Global Ventures in Dubai. Noor has a super cool background, having founded, scaled, and even taken a company public in various ventures. Her passion is solving big problems and opening up opportunities to venture capital for entrepreneurs throughout the Middle East region. Her fund focuses on enterprise B2B and digital health. Please enjoy my conversation with Noor Swede. Identified by Forbes magazine as one of the world's top 50 women in tech, Noor's previous roles include CIO at the Dubai Future Foundation and founder of Zen Yoga Studio Chain, which was acquired by Cedarbridge. Further, Noor was the first Arab woman to scale, IPO, and operate a public company in the Middle East region, listing DIPA on the NASDAQ Dubai and the London Stock Exchange for $1.1 billion US in April 2008. In addition to board roles on global ventures portfolio companies, Noor is chairperson of the Middle East Venture Capital Association and director for MIT Sloan and TechWadi. Noor is also the independent chairperson for the board for Clue Health. Noor holds bachelor degrees in finance and economics from Boston College, an MBA from MIT Sloan, and began her career as a biotechnology and pharmaceutical strategy consultant in the U.S. Noor, welcome to Fast Frontiers. Thank you, Tim, for having me. This is so exciting. Uh, when we first connected, I was like, okay, we can, we're going to record like five episodes here when you and I start talking. <laughs> and, uh, well, it, it would be an honor and a privilege. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're, you're doing so many exciting things there. And, you know, Fast Frontiers about how uh, innovation is accelerating in unexpected places. And my guess is a lot of our listeners are going to be U.S. listeners and are not necessarily familiar with what's been happening there in Dubai. There's a lot going on and you're one of the leaders. So if you would tell us about what's happening there and how you got into ultimately you know, being interested in being in venture capital. Absolutely, I will share my journey and kind of some insights that we've had. So, you know, our part of the world, and when I say our part of the world, we think about Middle East Africa. So it's one and a half billion people. We're very privileged and fortunate to have a population where 50% of our demographic is under the age of 30. And what that means is you have a lot of very young people doing a lot of very interesting things with their lives and wanting to change the world. And especially this generation is really driven and, and empowered to make the world a better place. That's, that's how, what drives them. So with that sense of purpose in the youth, which are the majority of the population here, you can't help but notice that you have entrepreneurs trying to solve real problems in the world, and you can't help but want to support them. So in my journey, I you know, built a company and scaled and sold it, and I was you know, fortunate enough to scale and IPO another company. And realize that building something from zero to one was in some ways much harder than running a billion dollar company. And mm -hmm. so thought about it carefully and decided that's where I wanted to spend my time and my energy is helping people build something when it's smaller. 
And the other part of it is really on the impact side. When you take a look across the world, venture-backed companies create 2.8 times as many jobs as non-venture-backed companies, at least in the U.S. and Europe. We have in the region 40% unemployment in our youth. So if we want to think about how do we encourage the youth not just to build companies, but then to scale them and create jobs, given that this is you know, something that they live with every day, then what better than to back them from a venture perspective? So let's unpack that a little bit. So, so first of all, as a, as a young woman leading a company and going public, what, were the, what was that experience like? What were some of the challenges you faced? Which part? The young part, the woman part, or the going public part? Exactly. You, you <laughs> have, yeah, it's all of them. It's, it's, it's tough in every way. I mean, you're the pioneer. So, so I, think, I, I think, you know, going public is always a challenge. It's about getting the right bankers and the right lawyers. And running the process is like running any process in business, which is it's really about driving things forward, making sure deadlines are met, making sure everyone's on the same page and, and looking forward to meeting the, their expectations and the expectations you've set of them. I think being a woman doing it is a little bit harder because more often than not, you're the only woman in the room. Sometimes you, you know, you're maybe one of two women in a room of 20. And especially this was a while back. So this was 12 years ago. The world hadn't changed as much as it has in the last 12 years. And then being young and running it is a whole other ballgame because, you know, it, it, there's a lot of questions on your credibility and your ability to lead the process and to move the process forward. And especially with the regulator and the bankers and the, the lawyers, and then the ability to understand the company and how is the money made and communicate that to investors and convince institutional investors from London and New York to deploy into the region, into an industry that they may or may not be familiar with in a region that they may or may not be familiar with it was a whole other you know, story. So, so it's a lot, of, a lot of different challenges. And I think the way to do it is always one day at a time, you know, define your process, run your process, keep to your process. And you were doing, what's interesting about that is you're, you're doing something, obviously, if you're an innovator, you're doing something that both you hadn't done before and very few, if any, other people had done before, right? So it's completely uncharted territory in many ways. Like, so who did you look to for mentorship or advisor? So I think with any learning goal in life, you look to what is best practice, right? So I, as opposed to looking to one mentor or advisor, you take a step back and you say, in an ideal world, what does this look like? Who has done this best? regardless of where they are in the world, regardless of their age or gender. And then from that, what can I learn? And then you kind of set that goal and, and chart that path. And then the question becomes, okay, now that I know where I want to go, how do I get there? I love that. Just, just like training for something in sports, training for a marathon, you look at, okay, how did you practice? How did you, what did you do leading yeah. up to that? And what were your, your, uh, you know, lap times or, or what have you, or split times, very similar in business. Yeah. It, it's all about, you know, performance goals and learning goals and, and setting goals and then finding a way to meet them. And once you start hitting those, you start developing a little more confidence, I would guess. Yes. And then the question becomes, how do you improve your performance? Right. right. So now you're like, now that I know how to do this, the question is, how can I do it better? Better right. than last time. You're achieve, you're out achieving others, and then you want to out achieve yourself again. So uh, you mentioned going zero to one million is actually even harder. Yes. Yeah. Why is that? 
Well, because you have to convince a client, right? Or a customer. So when you're building a business, you know, and I think of our venture capital firm, which is almost three years old now as building a business, you have to convince people to buy your product. So you actually have to go and solve a real problem, something that people are willing to pay you for. And in doing so, you have to identify the problem, create a solution that is better, cheaper, or you know, more competitive than what's already in the market. You have to validate that you're actually solving a problem because a lot of people will say, well, maybe that's a problem, but it's really not worth solving. And so then you have to prove that the problem you've identified is worth solving. And maybe you have to create the market. So when, when I started Zen Yoga in Dubai in 2006, there were no yoga studios, which is why I started Zen Yoga, because I moved back here and um, I wanted to continue to practice. And there, you know, I had started practicing in 2000. And I found it frustrating. There were no good studios or no studios at all. And so then I said, well, let me start a studio because if you can't find something, you know, you solve the problem and you create it. I, I figured I couldn't be the only person in Dubai that wants to practice yoga. Um, I did not think through my supply chain as a typical first-time entrepreneur. And so two weeks before opening this gorgeous, beautiful studio, I realized that there were no yoga teachers in town, which in hindsight seems obvious because there were no studios in town. And so there were a couple of teachers that taught at home, but nobody with the Yoga Alliance 200-hour teacher training that I had become kind of used to and comfortable with back in Boston. And so I convinced two teachers to move here from the States and opened up the first studio with them. Um, as the teachers while I was working in the family business at the time. And that was kind of how we started the studio, but then realized that the market did not exist. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, they, you know, especially consumer facing entrepreneurs, it's we're going to create something and convince people that they need it. And so then spent two years just promoting yoga in general. It wasn't even about Zen yoga, which was our studio, because obviously if you're convinced that you need to practice yoga and you live in Dubai, there's nowhere else to go. So we were the ultimate beneficiaries of the fact that nobody, that people had nowhere to go. So that's what we did. And so we just, in every magazine and every clinic and anyone who would listen would just talk about yoga and promote yoga and created the market such that four years later, we had 72 teachers, 6,000 unique students a month, five of our own locations, four managed locations, and the industry had grown massively. How long did that take, that education? For the education, I would say six months to 18 months until you felt like there was a community growing. Mm -hmm. And then by four years later, the business was a substantial business. And that happens so often when you're coming out with something new. To do back to best practices, were you designing and benchmarking Zen Yoga after company in the US? So I was designing and benchmarking bits and pieces of it because there wasn't something in the US that inspired me to create Zen Yoga. So Zen was created with as a beautiful ambiance, which back in 2005, when I left Boston, you know, yoga was still in a gym or like in the basement of someone's kind of building. It wasn't as trendy as it is today. It's 15 years later. It took the industry a while to pick up. And so when we created Zen, it was in my, in my ideal world, what does this space look like? How does this space feel? So that's what the space felt like. And then what are the best teachers in the world like? Well, they had the 200 or 500 hours, so let's get them. And then what is the best method to kind of compensate the team and the staff, right? And so we created our own method of compensation because we scoured, and there was a book on this, on how, how do you pay um, trainers and teachers. And so it was, what is the best of each component of this business? And let's pull that together. And that was the intention. 
And it was very interesting because as we did that, I said, well, what's the best software to manage this? And at the time, MindBodyOnline had just launched about six months prior. And I remember the, the website, or it was a website at the time, and the software, which was not cloud because cloud didn't exist back then, was only in dollars. And so I called the team in, in the States and said, why are you guys only in dollars? And they said, well, where are you? And I'm like, in Dubai. And they're like, but why are you on our website? And I'm like, well, I have a yoga studio and I want to run this yoga studio. And so we were their first international client. So we worked with them closely to make sure that they were you know, international and got the currencies on board. And, um, and I think it was very curious to them how somebody on the other side of the world wanted to use their software, which was new. And it was curious to us how the best software we, we found online was something that had just launched less than a year earlier. And that doesn't always work out. Startups working with other startups. Yeah, it doesn't. And But MBO is now massive. Obviously, it was one of the biggest that they IPO'd several years ago. And But that was the beginning of the industry growth. So we were lucky. I think one of the learnings there is always you know, market timing. You can't always time the market. But if you come into an industry that's already mature, you have to compete really hard. Whereas if you come into an industry that's young and early, you have to educate the market. So you have to pick one. Both are struggles, but you you know pick one and go with it. And that takes time and there's only so much you can do to accelerate the market. I mean, it's, it's education yeah. and it's hard to predict when the market's going to be ready. Absolutely. But, yeah. yeah. So tell us more about the region and what's been happening and the, the state of venture capital and entrepreneurship and what you saw prior to, you know, global ventures. So I've, you know, I've been investing in venture for, or I say in startups for about 12 years. Mm-hmm. And really as a method to support as first an angel investor and then an venture. And in that journey, you realized that there wasn't enough funding for startups in the region and for entrepreneurs. And so the region has 0.02% of GDP invested in venture. The U.S. has about 0.2%. So for context, it's 10x more as a percentage of GDP. So I started looking at the region and started helping entrepreneurs grow and then would encourage them to raise money elsewhere because there wasn't enough capital in the region for a venture, um, and they would move. So they moved to the US, they moved to Europe after they got funded. And that just wasn't something I wanted to, to encourage because I think that the smartest people should stay here and grow their companies here for many reasons. And so then I thought, okay, well, that's an ecosystem problem. So I'm much more of an entrepreneur than an investor you know, in my DNA. I'm an investor by training and by skill, but in my DNA, I'm much more of an entrepreneur. So I looked around in 2014, once I had exited both companies that I was running and asked, you know, what's the biggest problem I can solve as an entrepreneur? And realized that the biggest problem I could actually try to solve or create a little dent in, in my surrounding was really access to capital for founders. And so that happens to be called venture capital. And so I found myself becoming a VC. It was not by design, it was by accident. Wow. So, so identifying another problem and coming up with a solution for it. Yeah. Um, the companies, so tell us a little bit more about Global Ventures specifically, the companies you know, that you target and the stage. Yeah. And, and what you've so, done in the last three years. So we invest in companies that have about a million dollars in revenue and over. We do about 70% enterprise, 30% consumer. So we're much more of a B2B investor. We invest across the Middle East and Africa into companies that are generally scaling globally. So either it's global scalability, usually that's the enterprise side, or it's a regional white space. 
We align ourselves with um, three impact measurements from the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the UN SDGs. So we measure financial inclusion, we measure gender diversity, and we measure job creation. So we can tell you that our companies have created 2,600 jobs in the last two years. Our portfolio is 30% female, which for a venture is about twice the average, and we're in the Middle East. So we have provided access to financial inclusion for over 35,000 people through our portfolio. So those are impact measurements that we look at. We are now starting to measure healthcare inclusion as we do more in digital health. Um, so people who will have access to healthcare that previously had no access to a doctor. And we will start to look at education. Again, as ed tech picks up, we believe that in the next five to 10 years, you can probably start to measure how many more people are educated than would not have been given certain platforms. So we are a VC firm and in all intents and purposes, but we do look at impact just because of the part of the world where we live. We believe that all capital should be deployed consciously. It's great how you've tied that all together and tied those goals so everything's aligned. The last three years is your first fund? Mm-hmm. A $50 million fund, right? So the first fund is a 2018 vintage. Our first investment was made in May 2018. And um, that's a $50 million fund. Now we are in the middle of our second fund raise. It's a 50% digital health fund. And we've seen a lot of parallels between healthcare inclusion becoming a priority now after the healthcare crisis and financial inclusion becoming a priority after the financial crisis 10 years ago. And what we really have seen is as financial inclusion 10 years ago became a priority, what FinTech did was really help emerging markets leapfrog. So people went from having cash and coin to having a mobile wallet. They completely skipped the legacy infrastructure of banks. And the reason that happened is that banks cannot sustainably cater to the middle and the bottom parts of the pyramid, right? And you had 85% of our markets unbanked which have now come online using mobiles because you have the highest digital penetration of mobiles in the world. And so when you think about healthcare inclusion, it's the same thing. It's not that people are gonna replace their doctors. We don't have enough doctors. We have 1.2 doctors per thousand people versus four for the US and 4.8 for Europe. So when we stop and think, and same with hospital beds. So when we stop and think, how do people go from no healthcare to healthcare? It's they're going from no doctor to a teledoctor. We're not going to fix healthcare inclusion by building more hospitals, just like we didn't solve financial inclusion by building more banks. But it takes needs. So, you know, M-Pesa was created in Kenya because, and that was kind of one of the first financial inclusion or fintechs that really changed the world. And the reason that happened in terms of mobile banking was because it's not that people are trying to think outside the box in Kenya. It's that there is no box. And with that, it's, okay, everybody has mobile, everybody has cash. How do you turn cash to digital money or mobile money? Right? And, so that, and so you don't have to deal with thinking through your banking system and your regulator and your, you know, your, your legacy infrastructure. And similarly in healthcare, the Rwandan government has come forward and said, by the end of 2021, every citizen will have access to a teledoctor. And that is a much better way for government to approach things than try to say, we're going to build, you know, a thousand hospitals. So that's how we're starting to think about healthcare inclusion in the same parallelisms as financial inclusion 10 years ago. And similarly, 10 years ago, if we told you, you know, Tim or, or anybody 
that your phone was going to become a bank and you're going to have all of your financial data on your phone and you're going to do wire transfers from your phone and you're going to, you know, do currency and you're going to, you know, buy your stocks and on your phone, you would have said that's impossible. And now if we tell you, guess what, your phone or some other device, so a watch or some sort of strap around your wrist is going to become your remote diagnostics that actually keeps all your medical records and make sure you take your, your med. And if you're sick, it will tell you before you can call your doctor, right? Because it's measuring all your biometrics all the time. People today would think that that's quite insane. The same way they thought that your phone becoming your bank was insane just 10 years ago. Well, well I, I, I love the fact, I mean, you started with the fact that you have 50% of your people under 30 and that this changed the world mentality, which I think has been part of what's driven Silicon Valley for so long, right? People go there because they want to change the world. So by definition, you know, most people there, that's what they're doing. So what, what challenges do you face in the region? How do you think the region still needs to you know, grow or what challenges need to be overcome? So entrepreneurs are still constrained for capital um, because the region has historically not been a massive venture investor. And there isn't as much R&D as we'd like to see. So innovations are still a little bit on the technology side, some on the business model side, but not deep tech, which is what you know would be nice to see more of. And then I think still founders are generally first-time founders. And so the ecosystem cycle is still young. So how are you addressing that? We are participating actively. So when we invest in founders, you know, post-investment, we become very involved as a venture mm -hmm. capital firm and as a partner. And we help them across six different verticals, that, you know, all the way from revenue generation to governance to capital formation, recruiting, and so on. And so for us, it becomes important that the founders feel like they have an extended team and we're part of that extended team. And you know what those companies need to do or achieve to be able to raise additional capital after you, which is great. So we think we know. We also like to syndicate most of our investments. So we often syndicate with international investors. So we've syndicated with Tencent, with AIC, we've syndicated with Global Founders, or GFC, with Kingsway, all of them multiple times, with Excel, with Gobi out of Singapore. And that, again, enables our founders to have access to future capital raises internationally. So, Nora, what would be a great example of a next frontier company in the health tech space? So, why don't I give you an example of a company that started in the region and is scaling globally now in that space? So, we have in our portfolio a company called Proximi, which is an augmented reality solution or a mixed reality solution for hospitals. And so, she was a surgeon for 15 years working on cleft palates for children in war zones and other hard-to-reach markets and wished she could clone herself because she couldn't get into enough places as fast as possible. But instead of cloning herself, they started streaming. If you fast forward five years, Proximi is now based between the region and London, um, works with the NHS across 300 facilities, has done 6,000 interactions, more than double since COVID started. What they do is they allow the surgeon, the specialist surgeon, to stream into the operating room virtually. So it's just scrub in as a proctor. And it looks like his hand is literally inside the patient and guiding the surgeon that's in the room on what to do. So whereas it seems like, oh, it's for you know war zones and emerging markets that don't have doctors, if you take a look at the differences in, you know, in surgeries between London and some other parts of England or Boston and some other parts of the U.S., 
you find that there's a 3x increase in complications and fatalities because you have the wrong surgeon or a surgeon that's not as experienced in that specific type of surgery um, in the room. And so what COVID highlighted was the need to be able to get these surgeons in the room faster and cheaper, and as well as the ability for medical device companies to, to have their devices implanted with these surgeons remote rather than having to send a rep or a proctoring surgeon every time these devices wanted to be implanted. And so because of that, the company now operates in the UK and the US globally. They were covered recently in the Financial Times because they did something between the Cleveland Clinic and Afghanistan and saved two lives and the surgeon was sitting in the Cleveland Clinic in the US. And so when you think about the global application of this across many different markets, even within the US or within the UK or within Europe. But the solution was derived in a market that needed it, where the need was much more dire than anywhere else. So explain how that works. So is it, it's, is it, is it more than the doctor just being on a video in the operating room? Yes. Yeah, so it's a doctor being on a video in the operating room with the images of the patient on the same screen and the doctor being able to point to different things live while the other doctor is moving his hand. So it almost feels like a doctor's guiding the doctor that's in the OR physically. Wow. Well, that's yes. great. Well, and the connection to Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic, and also my, my alma mater, Case Western Reserve, has been one of the leaders with the HoloLens doing, I think they did the first you know, virtual cadaver uh, surgery. Oh. So they have a big practice there and we'll have to connect you. Uh, that would be that. great. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's just one example I can go on for ages. Uh, what are, are there um, some myths that you'd like to break in the region? Or bust? Well, yeah, you know, I think that we have incredible founders here that innovate and really build new solutions rather than just emulate. And I think one of the myths is where you know, most of our founders are copycat founders. And I would say across our portfolio of 20 companies, Maybe three are copycats. The rest are all genuinely innovative solutions and they've scaled globally. So 70% of our companies scale outside the region within one year of our investing, which is part of our mandate as an investor, as we say, you know, we'd like for them to enter global markets and with revenues, not costs, right? So a big differentiator. It's easy for someone to open an office somewhere and hire someone. It's harder to land a client. So that that's a myth is that, you know, it, it, we're only emulators, not innovators. Another myth, I think, is that the region's companies are only for the region. So you know, we've shown that, no, our region's companies can compete globally on a SaaS perspective, on a cybersecurity perspective. So from, from all perspectives. And then I think another myth is that there are no female founders in the region. So for us, you know, 30% female founders is a good number, and we are looking to increase it. Well, it sounds like uh, any any company you invest in is going to get, if the, if they're not already thinking big, they're going to be thinking big, uh, just by your we presence. We hope so. Your presence alone. We hope so. You know, one of the things that I focused on is this, you know, that growth experience. Are you finding other companies or places where you tend to recruit from, where you're able to tap into some of that talent? I think we recruit globally. So especially in Dubai, it's such a global city. So founders here can recruit globally. We are recruiting a lot from Egypt, from Jordan, some from Europe, especially after the Kareem exit. So when Kareem sold to Uber for $3.5 billion last year, that was a second big exit out of the region in a short period of time, and people started paying attention. 
Yeah, I bet. So are you are you building that as a platform within Global Ventures the, on the recruiting side, or is that done independently by each each of your portfolio companies? We were building it as a platform and then realized that we could never meet all our founders' needs. So we signed with two top tech recruiting agencies on a platform level. And so our portfolio have very discounted fees to use those plat- to use those two recruiting firms who are much more effective than us. But we still, on our platform, we also have an intranet for our founders um, and a community amongst them. And so they always post if they're looking for someone and if they're that gets shared among them. And I think that they often refer the best candidates to each other rather than from an outside recruiter. How have things changed as a result of COVID and remote work? No, I think the portfolio went through a, a difficult April, um, maybe May, but September, 70% of our companies reached all-time revenue highs. So they've come out on the other side stronger. I think it forced people to think a little bit more about sustainability, but that's the that's the beauty of emerging market founders. And, and maybe Tim, you have also some experience in this, is that they think about sustainability from a very early stage in their company's development because there isn't more capital, you know, six months later, I'll just raise another $10 million round is not something that occurs to them. So because of that, they get to a mature team with a really good product and clients as the first port of call before they go out to raise a proper round. And so sustainability is built into the DNAs of these companies. So it wasn't that difficult for them to go from, okay, we're burning some cash to let's go back to being sustainable because that's in their DNA. The other thing that I think COVID did was really solidify the concept of you have to back the right founders because companies need to change occasionally you know, or pivot massively, right? So depending on where you are. But if you pick the right founder, then they're able to do that for the company. If you pick the right company or you love the company, but you kind of like the founder, then you don't know if they could survive that. So it really highlighted the importance of picking the strongest founders when you're building a portfolio as a VC. So what do you look for? What are some of the questions you like to ask that help you pick the right folks? Yeah, I don't think it's a predetermined set of questions. I actually think it's a lot more to do with what is the problem they're solving and why do they care to solve it? You know, for, and then obviously you can get onto like, does a problem even matter? Does it exist in reality or just in your head? And how big is this problem? Is it worth solving? But if you see that passion in a founder, there's like a twinkle in the eye and a sparkle and, you know, you know, they're going to get out of bed on the worst of days and solve that problem because it really matters to them. And so you really have to love that about the founder and then have the conviction that they're coachable enough that if they discover along the way that this problem is not worth solving or not perhaps in this manner, but there's an adjacent problem that they will pivot and they will be able to see that. So the passion, the drive, the, you know, the stamina is what is incredibly important. And then the coachability is fundamental as well. How do you recruit other folks in part of this journey with the startups in terms of, you know, board members and others that can help guide your founders? Are they from the region or are they also international? They're both. So um, we believe in in a half-half approach. So we believe that knowledge transfer about, you know, building companies and industries comes a lot more internationally, but regional market knowledge is imperative. So, so we try to put the two together when we structure boards or advisory committees or cap tables. 
so for your next fund, any, any challenges you face or any messages you'd like to get out there? So I think that, you know, the next fund, 50% digital health, 50% other accelerated industries, so all the way from ed tech to fintech to data to goodness, future of work. For us, we believe that the, the emerging markets, and especially where we sit, which is so young in terms of emerging market growth, is going to be the next five to 10 years, if not 20 years of global growth. So given the demographic, given the shifts, given the globalization and the access, and even the democratization of access to job opportunities, that now you can apply for that engineering job in the U.S. no matter where you're sitting, because suddenly it's much more acceptable that you are sitting somewhere in Africa or India or the Middle East doing the work. So we believe there's been a fundamental shift in the way people work and in access to opportunities. And we believe that the growth for the next five to 10 or 20 years is going to come from emerging markets and that digital health is, is the next kind of five years in terms of where, where we're looking and other areas are also very interesting, but that this is a much more, um, I don't want to say important, but real part of the world in terms of the problems being solved impact hundreds of millions, if not billions of people rather than the top 2%. So you create also a lot of impact as you solve these problems. So we believe, you know, it's really about doing well and doing good. Um, and you can make the venture returns while affecting people's lives positively. So what is your current uh, LP makeup in terms of high net worth individuals, family offices, or institutions? All of the above. So 50% or the 40% institutions, 60% high net worths and families, 65% U.S., 35% non-U.S. Great. So any investors listening that have any interest <laughs> are always in this, welcome. Yes. Always welcome to talk to Nora. I would encourage it. Uh, so uh, if we can, Nora, let's let's go back to um, specifics around the company, the stage, and the growth. Like from the time you invest through the next let's say 24 months of that investment, what patterns have you seen, if any, or, or what kind of issues do you find yourself and the company and the founder solving or having to solve for in, in that next 24 month period, which, which I think is very critical to kind of unlocking that growth. What, what are you learning there? What do you expect and what are you seeing? Like, so usually it's at least, I'd say five X growth on, on the, in the indicators that we measure. They often recruit very quickly. So they're often at the stage where, you know, at a million, two million in revenue, they have really good product market fit. They have a few key clients and their next thing is we want to hire a, a chief sales officer. Right? So it's really the tech is very strong and it's about getting to the next level in sales, which is why then they grow very quickly. And then they usually go into one or two new markets within that period of time as well. Well, I think that recruiting point back to Fast Frontiers and other other places and unexpected places, not every region has all that resident capability or knowledge or skills. And so having a very intentional, specific plan on recruiting uh, is super important. And are you seeing a, a demographic or, or people that are coming you know, back to the region, as we, I call here boomerangs? We have a lot of boomerangs, especially during COVID. So I think a lot of people left and, you know, the region, especially Dubai, dealt really well with the situation. So a lot of people came back and have started companies. So it's good. We've seen 1,400 companies in the last two years 
So there's a lot of companies out there raising capital. Not all of them obviously met our mandate. But yeah, we have the boomerangs coming back and trying to, they tend to be more emulative than innovative. Oh, really? Yeah, because they've seen something where they were. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, well, if this worked in London, it should work here. And the response to all is probably, why don't you spend some time exploring how you can adjust it so it's reasonably suitable for the region. Uh, so specific to regional issues and understanding the, that that market. Dynamics. I mean, and yeah. Kareem, which was the regional Uber, kind of they they won and Uber acquired them in the end because of the regional understanding where people have cash, not credit cards. People want to talk to someone on the phone. They don't want to use an app. And they want to book in advance. And so offering those in that order over their first year kind of meant that they owned the market because as long as Uber was credit card and book on app and you can't book in advance, then you, you know, they were going to get the lion's share of the market. And that's what happened. And it was because they understood the regional dynamics. Did they they discover that over time, or they started that way? I don't. I don't they started that way. Yeah. They were they were two ex McKinsey consultants who were used to kind of lending and having to find a car or a taxi. And before Uber started here, they started and they said from the get go, we have to accept cash. And then they realized that people were were trying to call. The people were like sending the messages saying, "I want to book, but why can't I call?" And so then they enabled. Okay, well then let's have people call us to book. Right. And so, and one thing, then the other, and, and they educated the market on how to use the app and they had you, right. But you could always pay in cash until now you pay in cash. And then ultimately with Uber, you could start paying in cash, but it took Uber 10 years to get there. These guys started that way. Well, and that's a great lesson, yeah. especially in healthcare, as you talked about when you're starting without a box, yep. you're starting fresh, no hospitals. You basically have to throw your previous assumptions out the window. Yep. And you do. And I think that's why, Emerging markets are so special and unique. That's because they're a massive growth opportunity. Um, but to understand the problem, to solve the problem, you have to understand the problem. To understand the problem properly, you have to be living it or it's next door to you. It can't be 8,500 miles away, right? So this is why we believe that like regional VCs understand like which problems are worth solving a lot better because we understand those problems matter, right? And they matter to not one or two million people, about one or two billion people, or at least a couple of hundred million, right? And we understand the direness of those problems that are that are solved that people are solving. Well, well, the region is lucky to have you. Thank Looks you. like you're you're off to a great start <laughs> and have a very bright future. And I uh, appreciate you joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Beju Shaw, Senior Fellow for Innovation at the Cleveland Foundation. 